morning. If you, oh, I'm sorry. Thank you. Children are dismissed to Children's Church. We have um, toddlers ministry is from the very beginning, like from 10, 15 on when you first get here. But for our elementary aged kids, we let them stay in here with praise and worship for us. And then they get to go off to um, Children's Church. And then if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and Rick will bring you a Bible. I've got one. Oh, you've got one? Yeah, I've got one. I'm not coming for one. Coming for my water. So turn in your Bibles this morning to Titus chapter 1. We're beginning a new book, and I always love new books. It's like a, a new thing that we get to learn about the Lord, and it's always exciting. A little background about Titus. The Apostle Paul was uh, put on house arrest at the end of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 28. The book of Acts ends with Paul going into house arrest. Well, after that house arrest, he's released for a short period of time. And he travels throughout Macedonia and um, in that region, and he ministers to churches. And he also goes to the island of Crete. He also goes to the island of Crete. And then it's after Titus is written, he goes back to prison for the final imprisonment before his death. And that's where he writes 2 Timothy. So Titus, the book of Titus, is actually written between 1 and 2 Timothy. And it's uh, Paul's instructions to his pastor to uh, establish elders, establish leaders in the church. But the title of my message this morning is the DNA, the DNA of a spiritual leader. Let's pray again. Father God in heaven, thank you for your word. As we look at it now, Father, challenge us to step up, step it up, step up our game in serving you, in living for you, and being a true spiritual leader. In Jesus' name I pray, Father. Amen. So what, is a, what does a spiritual leader look like to you? I'll give you a second to think about that. In your mind, maybe you can think of a spiritual leader. Maybe it was a pastor, a parent, an aunt or an uncle, or someone that has helped you a lot in life. What does a spiritual leader look like? What does a spiritual leader look like? The scripture defines to us this morning in Titus chapter 1 what a true spiritual leader looks like within the body of Christ. You know, uh, in church leadership, you have uh, the pastor or shepherd. Some of them are called shepherds. Some of them are called pastors. You have uh, elders. You have deacons. And that's the church leadership. But guys, just because you're not in church leadership, don't check out on this message because these are principles for all believers. These are principles for all believers, for husbands and wives to live in their family, in their home, in their business, in their work, to bring our Christianity to work, to bring our Christianity to our home through the way we lead. Amen? Amen. All right, so let's take a look at it. Titus chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of the chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness and the hope of eternal life. Now, if you read the rest of this chapter, He's going to get into the qualifications of, of a spiritual leader. But I want to grab it from the very beginning. I want to look at the spiritual principles of leaders in this very first verse where Paul is introducing himself. And a true spiritual leader sees themselves, just like Paul saw, saw himself, as a what? What does it say there in verse 1? A bondservant. A bondservant. In the first century, there were bondservants. There were slaves. They were indentured slaves. 
They were people that owed people money, and in order to pay back what they owed them, they became their slave. They became their servant, their bondservant. And there were cases where uh, some of these servants, some of these slaves, were treated so greatly by their master. They were treated so good that after their indentured time was over, they said, you know what? I'm with you for life. I'm going to stay with this master for the rest of my life. Why? Because the master has been so good to me. My friend, has God been good to you? Has Jesus been good to you? Has he served you well? Has he ever betrayed you or done you wrong? He provided the way for your salvation. He died on the cross for your sins. He's given you eternal life. He's given you grace. He's given you mercy. He's given you peace. This master in heaven, Jesus, he's been great to you. So the only biblical response is, Lord, I want to serve you. I want to serve you. I, 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 I want to be a doulos. I want to be a bondservant. So that's what a spiritual, that's the first principle of a spiritual leader. And then he says, an apostle of Jesus Christ. A spiritual leader sees themselves in this world as a missionary. And the world is their mission field. Do you know that? Your neighborhood, your work, your family, everyone that's around you, that is your mission field. That is your mission field. Paul calls himself in verse 1, he calls him an apostle. And an apostle is one who is sent forth with a message, with a message. And you and I are sent forth with a message. That word apostle, I like I like I have two definitions of apostle. Apostle with a capital A and apostle with a little a. Apostle with a capital A are the disciples. These were eyewitnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were commissioned to write his word. Apostles with a capital A, there are no more of those. But apostles with a little a, which simply means just one sent forth a missionary, that's you and I. God has commissioned us by his word to go out and share the good news of the gospel. And that is a very key component of a spiritual leader. He understands that he has been sent out into the world, that it is his mission to spread the glorious good news of Christ Jesus. And look at his job description. I'm gonna, I want to hang out here just a second in verse 1. He says, Paul, a bondservant and apostle of Christ Jesus. And he, and he's, he, he's, he mentions several things there. The first one is, he says, for the faith of the chosen. A spiritual leader's job is to build the faith of others. And he says, if you look at it, it says, the faith. Now, what's he talking about here in verse 1 where it says, the faith? He's talking about biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity. Plain and simple, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Walking, by, walking in the Holy Spirit. Uh, being saved. We, we stand on grace and grace alone. By faith in Christ alone. That, that is the, the fundamental core truth of the faith. And then he says, uh, and the knowledge of the truth. The knowledge of the truth there. A spiritual leader challenges, uh, helps other people grow in the knowledge of the truth. How do we grow in the knowledge of the truth? By doing what we're doing right now. By opening our Bible and reading it and studying it and understanding it. Uh, the next part there in verse 1, it says, Titus says, I mean, Paul says, according to godliness. A spiritual leader helps other people grow in godliness. You know, Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1, he says, Be holy, for I am holy. And we are called to challenge one another to move forward in our walk with Christ. A, a spiritual leader challenges others, Hey, God is holy. We need to be holy. 
you know, we need, to, we need to live out what we preach. And that's very important. And then he says in verse 2, in hope of eternal life. A, a spiritual leader brings the message of hope. You know, our hope, there's some things that we hope for in this life. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's things that we like to look forward to. But ultimately, our hope is in, is in Jesus. Our hope, the foundational hope of our life is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what a spiritual leader points other people to. He points them to that hope. Now love, look at the end of verse 2. There's a great nugget, beautiful truth right here. The last half of verse 2, he says, Which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. Do you know there's things that God can't do? And here's one of them. What does it say God can't do? God cannot lie. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. Uh, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, For nothing can be done against the truth, but only for the truth. There's, there's, there's no lies in God. He is complete truth. He is complete reality. He, so he, God cannot lie. He will not tell us something in his word that's not true. That's why we teach it chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Wednesday night, we look at the Old Testament. Sunday morning, we look at the New Testament. We want to see the whole counsel of God because this is the ultimate definition of, of, of God's truth, his word. Uh, God does not tempt us. God does not tempt you. God does not tempt people. James 1.13 says, God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. God is not the author of evil and sin. Let me just say that right now. God, let me say that one more time. God is not the author of evil and sin. Well, Pastor David, where does evil and sin come from? It comes from our fallen, these fallen human beings that we are, and from Satan himself. That's, the, that's where the origins of evil and sin are. It was Adam and Eve who fell in the garden. It was Adam and Eve who disobeyed the Lord, chose to do their own thing, and they fell. That was their action, not his but God cannot tempt us. You know, when we see, there's some evil things that happen in this world. I've seen some really bad things. And it's really uh, turned some people's faith upside down. Like, how could that happen? How could that be? Well, when you understand the fallen nature of man and our sinful fallen condition, man, mankind can do just about anything to the deepest depths of evil and sin. And that's where sin and evil comes from, not from the Lord. God cannot deny himself. That comes from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. It says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Praise the Lord for that. Praise the Lord for that. That means that God is faithful, guys. God is faithful. The God that you trust in, the God that you believe in, the God in whose word you study, he's faithful. He's faithful to his promise. In your deepest, darkest storm, when life's turned upside down, you can go to the book. You can go to the book and you can trust what you read because he is faithful to his promise. And he will keep us through the trials, through the storms, through the difficult times. He's faithful. So there's certain things that God cannot do. And that one in verse 2 there, I had to bring it out a little bit here, is he, he cannot lie because he's a faithful God and he's uh, full of truth and grace. God is always right. God is always perfect. God is good. Listen to Deuteronomy 32.4. Deuteronomy 32.4 says, 
He is the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of truth and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. My friends, again, God is perfect. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is everything you need. Not some of what you need. He is everything you need. And if you have Jesus, if you have this personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, you have everything. You have everything. But check this out. If you don't have it, you have nothing. You're void and you're bankrupt. Just like I was void and I was bankrupt until that day I met the Savior. And that was when I got everything, everything, when the day I received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. He was everything I needed. All that other little stuff all became secondary and third level, and I'll get to it one day. But I had Jesus. I had everything. Amen? Look at verse 3. But at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation for which I was entrusted according to the commandments of God our Savior. Paul here was entrusted with what? God's manifested word. Paul loved the word. And you and I should love the word. He loved it, he lived it, and he preached it. So should you and I. So should you and I. We should love his word, we should live his word, and we should proclaim his word because his word is true. Verse 4, it says, To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Now who was this guy, Titus? This book here was written after. Second Corinthians, Paul mentions uh, Titus 13 times. But what's interesting is, if you go to the book of Acts, how many times does Paul mention there? I mean, if you go to the book of Acts, how many times is Titus mentioned there? Zero. Zero. He's not mentioned at all. But Galatians makes reference to Titus being the one that went with Paul to the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. Why? Because Titus was a Gentile. And Paul wanted to use Titus as, a, uh, as proof, as evidence to the council at Jerusalem that, hey, the Gentiles don't have to be circumcised in order to be saved. Hallelujah. But it was the proof. It was the evidence that faith in Christ and Christ alone was, was sufficient for salvation. And it did not require all the, the laws of Judaism. So that's who Titus was. This, this letter that we're, Titus, is one of three pastoral epistles. First Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus. If you want to know the job description of a pastor, a leader, an elder, a deacon, there you go. That's our, that's our job description. That's where we get our, our marching orders. It's from these books. Um, and, and Titus is instruction that Paul is given to Titus for um, establishing leaders along this island in Crete. What Titus really is, Titus is just like Timothy. What, what it really is, it's the baton. It's the baton. It's, it's Paul passing the baton to Titus because Paul knows he's not going to be around much longer. Just like First and Second Timothy is uh, Paul's baton handing it off to Timothy. That's what these are. He's, he's passing them on to these spiritual leaders. And um, 
So let's look at verse 5. Verse 5, he says, here's his mission. Here's his mission to his young pastor. For this reason, I left you in Crete, that you set order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. So he says there to him, he says what? Appoint elders, presbyters, bishops, overseers, pastors. There's many different definitions uh, of this word, but it's the, it's the leaders within the body. But here, check this out. Now he tells uh, Titus, go appoint elders, go appoint leaders. But it wasn't exclusively up to Titus. Titus had to go to out these churches there in Crete, and he had to see something. And let's take a look. Um, Acts chapter 20, verse 28. It says, uh, it should be up on the screen, Acts 20, 28. And let's see what else was there to be the witness of these leaders being appointed at Crete. He says, Paul's on the beach. He's speaking to the elders at Ephesus because he's fixing to head to Jerusalem. And, and he tells them, he says, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock for which what? The Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he brought with his own blood. You see, this, this role of leadership within the church is not a matter of our own efforts. It's not a matter of our own deeds or our own works. But this role of church leadership uh, is, is done by the Holy Spirit. It is, is the work of the Holy Spirit within the life of the leader. And he's the one that makes them the leader. And then he says in verse 6, he says, uh, here goes, here, here we, we're, we're diving into the qualifications that he's going to look for the men in those churches. This is still in effect for today. Verse 6, he says, namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dispensation or rebellion. So that first thing there he says in verse 6 is what? Above reproach. Some of your translations, it means the same thing, but it, uh, blameless. Blameless. That means there's nothing hanging over your head. That does not mean that you're perfect, because no one is perfect. And every leader, even leaders in the church, have blown it. But it, what it does mean is that you're mature. That you're mature and that you're moving forward to live out the model of a Christian life. You know, this is not, it's not this perfect, it's not this perfect. There's no, there's no one good, no, not one. There, there's no one's perfect. But it's a godly man that's living the model of a Christian life. And he's living above reproach. He's running away from sin and not to sin. He's striving to be an example for the body to follow, to be that one that the, that the people go to the church and say, hey, will you pray for me? Because I know you're a leader. I know that you're, you're, you're practicing what you preach, and you're an authentic believer. Will you please pray for me? And also he says there, the husband of one wife. Literally, in, in the translation, it means a one woman man. A man that is completely committed to one woman in marriage. His eyes belong to his wife. He is faithful to her. This is what this is, this is what it's talking about. And notice in verse 6 also, um, namely it says, if any man. And then later on in the verse it says, the husband of one wife. He's talking about an elder, a pastor, an overseer. And that's why God has chosen 
it's said in his word that, that the, for the pulpit and the pastors and the elders, that, that is a ministry for men. That, that is, that is a uh, male leadership. God calls male leadership to be in the pulpit and to be the leaders of the church. It's not, be, and, and it's not, it's because we all have different roles. We all have different roles. Just like in the family, the husband plays his role, the wife plays her role. You know, we have ladies here at Calvary Chapel Irma that do a wonderful job in serving. And they serve in that role of being like a deacon and overseeing ministries. And they do an awesome job. And we're very thankful for them. If you go to Romans chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, Paul calls Phoebe what? A deacon. A deacon. But for the pulpit and for the, for the pastor, the shepherd of the church, this right here is where we, is where we find our information that the uh, pastor of the church it calls for male leadership. And he also says there, um, having children who believe, not accused of dispensation or rebellion. You know, th- this uh, spiritual leader, he, he manages his home. He leads his family. He maintains a godly influence over his children. doesn't mean his children are perfect, but he's doing his very best to lead them to Christ to lead them to the Lord, you know? And we need to show our leaders uh, and, our ch- and their children, as well as all children, what? Grace. Grace. Because this is, this is the direction that the leader is to move in to continue to be a leader within the body. Very, very important. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 says, For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. That means he's the, 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 these, this pastor or elder is entrusted with the things of God. That means that uh, he's faithful in his commitment to the local body. That's what it says to, to be above reproach as God's steward, God's steward of the things in the church. It says there he's not self-willed. I mean, this uh, spiritual leader he submits to the authority of God's word. He submits to the authority the leaders have placed above him. And the biggest thing, uh, when I see that word, not self-willed, the, the thing that grabs me is he's a team player. He's a team player. You know, in church leadership, you've got to be a team player. You've got to be a team player. You've got to be willing to work together with each other, you know. We all come from different walks of life. We all have different priorities. But we've got we to come together in the spirit of grace and work together. It says not quick-tempered. That means he does not fly off the handle in anger. He doesn't get torqued easily. He's not a hothead. If you're a hothead, uh, you're not qualified. You're you're not qualified. You know, anger has no place in the church. Anger has no place in the home. Anger has no place in your work. You know, it's people that are hotheads and they go off very easily. They're not nice people to be around. So let's stay away from that. And it says they're not addicted to wine. A spiritual leader does not have a drinking problem. They do not have a drinking problem. Now, every time we talk about wine, it comes up in the New Testament. The first question that people ask me, well, Pastor David, is drinking a sin? Is drinking a glass of wine or having a beer a sin? Personally, I do not believe it is. I do not believe it is. Now, it can become sin, but having a glass of wine or having a beer, if that's 
what you want to do, do it. But here is where I believe it can fall into sin. It's when you do it and it becomes a stumbling block to a brother or sister in Christ. That's um, when it becomes a sin. Or when you become intoxicated and, and you use it, you, you go to alcohol instead of going to the Lord. You know, people turn to alcohol because of their pains and the things that are hurting them in life and, and their depression. You know, take that pain and that depression you're going through. Instead of going to alcohol, go to Jesus. Go to the Lord. Go to the Lord. I personally do not drink at all because I don't want to be a stumbling block. I don't want to be a stumbling block. I don't want to set a bad example. Um, Enough said with that. He says there in verse 7, not pugnacious. The word pugnacious means not violent. He's not filled with rage. He's not physically violent. You know, uh, uh, he's, he's self-control. Uh, he, he's, he's loving. Um, not fond. The next one is not fond of sordid gain. Not sordid gain. You know, ministry is not the place to get rich. Simple as that. Ministry is not the place to get rich. When the Lord blesses us with an overabundance of, uh, of finances, what do we do? We look to ways to invest it back into the kingdom. Whether it's feeding students at Irmo High School or having a fifth quarter or going out and helping people with, with needs, uh, that's what we do with that ministry. Or maybe hire more people to facilitate more ministry. That's what we do. But the scripture is very clear. You know, over and over, and that's one of the things I don't understand about the prosperity gospel and their overemphasis of money is, is um, the scripture clearly says we're not here for financial gain. We're not here for, for um, we're not to be fond of, of sort of gain. And I was where you were at for almost, I've been a pastor now for five years. I've been a Christian for 26 years. And one of the things that turns me off the most when I go to a church is when they hark on money. It's just a complete turnoff. Man, it's not about money. It's about, I, I want you guys to fall in love with Jesus and follow the Lord and live for him. Now do give, because we do have bills to pay. <laughs> but, but, but that's not the center of it, though. The, cen the center of the ministry of the church is to point people to Christ. So, verse 8, he says, but hospitable means you love people. You like to show hospitality. That's what, that's what hospitable means. You, you welcome people. Even, even the idea of welcoming strangers. You know, I hope that, you know, our first-time guests that come to Calvary Chapel, that they feel this warmth of love and they feel this welcoming. That, to let them know, that, man, we welcome you. We welcome you to come fellowship with us. We welcome you to come and, and dig into the Word. Even though we barely know you, we want to be hospitable to all people. We're not this club. We're not this club all looking in. We come together, we get in the word, we worship, and then we focus our attention on our neighborhoods, our friends, and our families, and our loved ones, and our, the people around us. But we're hospitable. He says, loving what is good, verse 8. Um, we love what God loves. We love what God loves. We love people. We love all people. No matter who they are or where they're from, we love them. Because we want to point them to Jesus. We hate sin. We hate sin. We hate evil. And we hate what, um, as Christians, we hate what sin and evil does to people. It makes us mad at the devil. It, and it just makes us want to proclaim the gospel louder. 
so people can be set free. But we hate the, the, the effects of, uh, of, of immorality and, and human trafficking and, and all those things that hurt the people in this world. We hate those evil things. He says there in verse 8 also, um, a spiritual leader is sensible. He is sensible. Means, uh, sensible means he's sober-minded. He thinks clearly. His thought life is under control. His or her, their thought life is under control. They, you are constantly reminding yourself of God's truth. You know we have to do that, right? It's not just a one-time thing. Sometimes you have to preach to yourself. And I do that a lot. Come on, David. Rise up. You can do this. Put your hope in the Lord. I look in the mirror every morning, and I have a long talk between me and me. And I say, you're going to serve the Lord today. You're going to do what's right today. Now, let's, let's go pray, and let's go do it. But it, that's, that's a good thing. You're sensible. You're sober-minded. He says there, the next one in verse 8 is, uh, again, I'm bringing these out to, to everyone because this is for everybody here. This is for everybody here. There's no one here within the sound of my voice that these principles of living a godly life are not for. Now, he's given them in context. He's given them for the church leaders that he's establishing there at Crete. But again, they're for all people. It says in verse 8, just and devout. Just and devout. That means a spiritual leader is godly. A spiritual leader is uh, spirit-filled. A spiritual leader has a fire inside them, and they just want to spread it. The joy of the Lord is in their heart. The excitement is in their heart. They have a passion to worship Jesus, to get into the Word, to live out the Christian life. It's actually exciting. It's actually joyful. And that's the kind of men... And ladies, specifically in the text here, church leadership, that's the kind of people we want to be. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said. Charles Spurgeon, on June 12th, 1861, he was preaching a sermon. I went back and looked at it. Metropolitan Tabernacle, Newington, London. Charles Spurgeon said this in the pulpit in his prayer. For them. He says, Lord, send to thy church men filled with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Give to any denomination such men... And his progress must be mighty. But then he says, keep back such men, gentlemen of great refinement and profound learning, but of little fire and grace, a little fire and grace, dumb dogs which cannot bark, and straightway that denomination must decline. We need men with fire. We need ladies with fire. We need leaders with fire, with passion. They aren't coming to Sunday just to check the block, but they're coming to Sunday like you're pulling into a gas station and you want to get filled up again. And you want to rekindle that flame that's on the inside. Paul told Timothy, he says, stir up. Stir up the gift that's within you. And that's what we're called to have. Let's continue here. He says, uh, a spiritual leader is self-controlled. You know, in other words, uh, they handle their emotions they, they handle their actions. They handle their life. And I'm, I'm going to be honest with you, man. I, I got beat up this week. I got beat up this week as I was studying some of these things because I was like, oh, I need to improve there. I need to work on that area. You're not looking at this perfect holier-than-thou pastor, okay? 
You're looking at a pastor who's filled with the Spirit, who loves God, who's walking in grace. But I wrestle at times just like you, you do too, just like we all do. But he's self-controlled. He's got to handle his emotions, his actions, his life. This is a tall order. This is a tall order. Man, if you're, if you're looking at this without looking at the, the work of the Holy Spirit, if you're looking at this text without the work of the Spirit and just looking at it from a naturalistic standpoint, your, your question is going to be like, who can do this? Who can do this? The, que- the answer to the question is nobody. Nobody can do it. Only the Holy Spirit. Only Christ Jesus in us, submitted and yielded to him, does he produce these things that we're talking about. You know, if you go home and say, oh man, I got to start working on these things. What am I going to do? And you start doing it in your own strength, you're going to burn out. You're going to burn out. And you probably won't make it. On the flip side of that, if you go home and you go to your prayer closet and you get on your knees and you say, Lord Jesus, I surrender to you more. I submit to you more. Holy Spirit, please produce these things. I think you'll make it. I think you'll make it. Because it won't be you. It'll be the Holy Spirit. That's what it does. Look at verse 9. Great passage. Um, I was wrestling this week as I was preparing my sermon. And I was um, looking at those verses I just taught on. Verses, verses, verse 9. And one of, the, one of my thought process is he saves the best for last. He saves the, he saves the best qualification for last. Because we're going to look at verse 9. I think it's the number one qualification. But then on the flip side of that, and I, I hope you're understanding where I'm going with this, it was practice what you preach. In other words, uh, you need to be living the life before you can preach it. Let's look at verse 9 and maybe you'll catch on to my thought process. Verse 9, he says, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with teaching, so that he will be able to both to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. So the spiritual leader does what? According to verse 9, he holds fast to the faithful word. Now, if you look at all those qualifications, do you see where I was going with that? you got to practice before you preach it. Because holding fast to the faithful word, another way it can be said is teaching the word. So you got to live it before you can teach it. So I, would go to the, I, could, I could go that route. Or the other route I could go in presenting the text to you this morning is this. He saves the best for last, the most important function of a spiritual leader is that they hold fast to the faithful word of God. You know, we, 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 when, that, when we say stay faithful that, and we stay faithful to the scriptures, that means that what we believe lines up with what the Bible teaches. That's what being faithful to the word is. Your word says this, I believe it. Your word says this, I believe it. Your word says this is wrong, I believe it's wrong. Your word says this is right, I believe it's right. That's what it means to be faithful, to hold fast to the faithful word. And then, uh, so this is the final principle. <sighs> spiritual leaders, spiritual leaders in the church, pastors, 
elders, deacons, and, and not, just, not just those guys. I, I, I want to I spread this across this principle, but especially to our leaders, to our elders and deacons. We, you and I, we are like guards around the body of Christ. We are like guards around the body of Christ. That's why as a spiritual leader, you've got to be strong in the word. You've got to know what the word says because it's our job to protect the body of Christ. And when a false teaching comes in, we hear it. We know it. We say, oh, no, 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 no. That's not what the scripture says. And, and, and so we're here to, to guard the body of Christ. We're here to, to protect them as spiritual leaders. But again, this is a ministry for all people, for, for husbands and, and wives and their families. Your job is to guard and protect your family. You need to be in a sound, solid, Bible-teaching church that opens up the Word. You know, expositorily, topical preaching, but just teaching, teaching the Word. So you're receiving good, solid food, good information that will inform your hearts, it will inform your mind. That's, what I, that's why in 2005, I think it was, when I found Calvary Chapel, and I walked into Calvary Chapel, Lexington, and Pastor John just opened up the Word and started teaching it. I was like, wow, this is really good. This is really good. I'm digging this, man. They're just teaching the Word. I was out in um, Arizona doing border patrol with the National Guard, and I went up to uh, Phoenix, Arizona, and I, vi- I visited a Calvary Chapel, and I'll never forget that Calvary Chapel pastor that morning. He taught on the rapture, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And he taught through verse by verse. And I wept through the whole service. I wept and cried like a baby through the whole service. And people are looking at me like, dude, what are you, you're crying. He's talking about the rapture. And, and I'm like, I just wept at the, the beautiful teaching of the scriptures. It, it, it brought joy to my heart. It brought lots of joy to my heart. And I loved it. All right, guys, let's finish up this chapter. Verse 10. So remember, spiritual leaders in the church protect the church. They guard the church. They help guide the church. Men that are filled with the Holy Spirit and that lead the body. He says in verse 10, For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching the things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. Who's he talking about in verses 10 and 11? He's talking about false teachers. He's talking about false teachers. And what does he say about them? He says they must be silenced. It says, what does he say? It says they're, they're upsetting whole families. When, when people bring in false teaching, it, it, it upsets people. It, it greatly affects people. It, it hurts people. It destroys them uh, Spiritually, and look at what is ultimately behind, behind them. The, in, the very, the, in the NASB, the last two words of verse 11, what are they there for? Sorted gain. That means they're there for the money. They're they doing the Tom Cruise, show me the money. You know, they're like, give me some money. We've already said, as we, we saw in scripture a while ago, ministry is not about making money, it's, it's not about getting rich. But it, but it says they must be silenced. Well, God's voice is not thundering down from heaven to tell these people to go away. Who they must be silenced by? 
by the leaders, by, by spirit-filled men and, and who, who confront them in a spirit of grace and truth and love because you ultimately want to pull them out of it, but they confront them. Verse 12, one of themselves is a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Um, by the way, I've been to this island before. My first deployment in 92, USS Concord. Uh, within a month of our deployment to the Mediterranean, we pulled into Sudabay Crete. And it was before I became a Christian. It was a haze. I vaguely remember our three-day stay there. But I just remember it was wild. It was a raucous atmosphere. It was a, it was a, it's a, it's a the, the, Crete is an island in the Mediterranean that's right below Greece. And we pulled in there, and man, it, it, it was a, the, ta- the place was filled with immorality. And the thing that stood out to me most about Crete when I was there is I remember we were downtown enjoying the festivities, and we, we got on a bus to come back to the ship, and we were going to the pier, and there were these people that were protesting us. I was in the Navy. I was a sailor in the Navy. There were these people that were protesting us, and I remember one of the sailors, one of the U.S. sailors on the USS Concord, got into a, got into a brawl with, with these protesters, and he got arrested by, by the, the Crete authorities, and uh, he was taken into custody. And so we, we, we finished our six-month deployment. We were coming back. And I remember the XO telling us they still have not released him. It was a very rough place. I, I remember them, them redirecting our traffic to keep us away from these protesters. What they were protesting, I have no idea. This was a long time ago in 92. I just remember just how dark it seemed there and how violent they were. And then I was thinking about that situation in Sudabay, and I read verse, verse 12 where it says, one of them, a prophet of their own. It says, the Cretans are always, are, are always liars. In the first century, there was this phrase called to Cretanize. Look it up. To Cretanize. And to Cretanize means to tell lies, to be false. Why would somebody want to do that? I don't know. But they were, to Cretanize. And he, he describes them as evil beast. Evil beast, angry, ferocious, mean, attacking. That's what evil beasts are. And I was like, wow, yeah, that, that assault that took place with all these violent, angry people that one of our sailors got into a fight with. Lazy, as he says there um, in verse 12, lazy gluttons. They don't want to work, and all they want to do is eat. So that's what this prophet said about them. And look at what he says in verse 13. Look at what Paul says in verse 13. He says, this testimony is true. This testimony is true. In other words, he had been there. He had went to the island uh, there with Titus, and he had witnessed that indeed it was true. He says, and this is good, guys. This is really good. Hang with me here. Look at verse 13. He says, for this reason, reprove them severely so they may be sound in the faith. Now, what is he talking about here? Reprove them severely. What I believe he's talking about here when he says reprove these guys severely is he's preached the gospel and bring it, bring the thunder, bring the house. You know, don't bring no seeker sensitive, washed down, watered down message. 
tell them that they need to repent. They need to put their trust in Christ. They need to examine themselves in the light of God's moral law and see how they're a fallen sinner and let them see their guilt, that they're under God's wrath. And then, and only then, once they're humbled, give them this glorious, beautiful good news of the gospel. That's what, he, that's what he's saying. In other words, reprove them severely, Paul says in verse 13. In other words, preach the gospel and do it with a seriousness. Do it with an earnestness. I mean, I've, been, I've witnessed to people before, and I'm like, please think carefully about what I'm saying. I'm not asking you for your money. I'm not asking you to go to church. I'm just asking you to consider the claims of Christ. To look at this beautiful, glorious gospel. To understand where you are without it, and then understand where you are with it. And just, because I'll tell them, when you leave this life, think about how long you're going to be gone for. Dangle them over eternity. Because once you take that step into eternity, it's set forever and ever and ever. There's nothing more important than a person's salvation. So we need to bring that, 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 that love that confidence to our witness and share people with the truth and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 14, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth, they'll cling to anything. Uh, People are religious by nature, okay? All people are religious by nature, and for the most part, they'll cling to anything except Christ. Verse 15, to the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience is defiled. I believe what the apostle is saying here in verse 15 is this. Clean mind, clean heart produces a clean life. I think that's what he's saying. How do we get a clean mind? How do we get a clean heart? By trusting in Christ. By believing in him. And no matter what you've done, no matter how bad you failed, no matter how many times you committed the sin, there's one Bible verse I disagree with where Paul says, I'm the chief of sinners. He says that in the text. I disagree with him there. I, say, I like to say, no, no, Paul, I'm the chief of sinners. But when you believe in Christ and you trust in Christ, everything is made right. You are given a clean heart. And when you have that clean heart and that clean mind, it produces a life where you're, you're optimistic and you see the good in life under God. Verse 16 says, They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good. My friend, I close with this thought. Uh, I thought of the context of verses 1 through 16. What I just presented to you is why we need leaders, spiritual leaders in the church. This is why we need strong leaders in the church. Number two, this is why you need strong leaders in your home, okay? That's why I said this is just not for church leadership. This is in the home, in the school, at work. You need to be strong in the faith. And we do it by, by doing what we, what we do here. We need to all be spiritual leaders. Again, 
I've probably said this about 10 times. I'm going to say it 11 times. This is not just for pastors. This is not just for elders. This is not just for deacons. This is for all of us who endeavor to serve Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God in heaven, we thank you, Lord. We thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you for the study of Titus chapter 1, Lord. Thank you for bringing us into this new book and letting us look at it and learn and grow. Father, help us to walk in grace. Help us to walk in truth. And Lord, I pray over these things that we just read, these characteristics, that you will um, develop these in all of us, Lord. Lord, let us seek you, submit to you, and grow in these areas of life. In Jesus' name I pray, Father. Amen. Um, We're going to have prayer now. And if you're here...